Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Pod Strickland. I'm your host, Shwini Kuhn, episode 188. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host on Fridays, Prez, that's at Presidente on Twitter. Prez, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm very, <clears throat> very excited for today's pod because I feel like I've been on an NBA vacation. I've hardly watched any of the opening playoff games because I've had family over for about a week. So the only basketball I've consumed has been when I could like squirrel myself away to just mash out more draft content. So uh, I'm interested in learning what the hell has happened in the last week or so. Uh, well, not too much, you know, just the playoffs. Uh, no, a lot of things have happened. And to talk about that and all things Pacers, uh, friend of the pod has not been on in a long time. You know her as Caitlin Cooper. That's at C2Cooper on Twitter. Caitlin, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be back talking to my loyal base of New York Knicks fans <laughs> because I am a lifelong Knicks fan. <laughs> long time. everyone. Sun. Long time. Everyone knows this. <laughs> I thought you were a lifelong Suns fan. Also true. I have, I have a lot of fandoms. This is all true. I have an elementary school folder with all 30 logos. You can go back and look. <laughs> Um, Who among us in the mid two thousands wasn't wearing the hats with all thirty team patches on them anyway? <laughs> uh, I actually, uh, I, one of my the first one of the first jerseys I ever got was a Charles Barkley Suns jersey. So, um, not a lifelong Suns fan like you, Kalen, but I do have a connection to the franchise. Uh, but before we get started, do you need to mention the Strickland is a Patreon? You can subscribe to it. There's a number of tiers. There's a $6 tier that gets you access to this pod right here in full. Pod Strickland every Friday that I do with Prez. You also get access to the mailbag that I do every other week with Jeremy and Drew. Furthermore, you get access to the Strickland Discord where we talk about the Knicks and sometimes even the Pacers um, all the time. It's great. It's wonderful. It's a very vibrant and alive community that we've created there. There's further tiers. There's a $9 tier that gets you access to my solo pod where I yell about the Knicks even more. You also get access to, and more importantly, uh, weekly articles by the wonderful Matthew Miranda, uh, arguably one of the best in the business. There are further tiers. There's a $15 tier, $30 tier, $50 tier, and $100 tier. Those get you access to a variety of other benefits like discounts on merchandise, live watch parties, listening in on a pod recording, even potentially hosting a podcast alongside us with yours truly, yourself. Uh, but whether you choose to subscribe or not, your support is appreciated on this week possible without you. So without further ado, let's talk about the Indiana Pacers. Actually, let's talk about the Indiana Pacers because they have had they had a very interesting season, uh, made a slightly consequential trade. Uh, right before the trade deadline, they traded, what was it? 
Devonta Sabonis uh, for Tyrese Halliburton. There were obviously other pieces involved. Jeremy Lamb uh, going to Sacramento and Buddy Heald and somebody else that I'm completely blanking on, I believe. Tristan Thompson and then yes. Justin Holiday also went out to Sacramento right, as well. Right. So Nick Legend, Justin <laughs> Holiday. That's right. Forget. Once a Nick, once a Nick, always a Nick. Um, look, I, I, I think it was always it was heading this way with the way the season started, the way it did. But before we like get into all that, I, I just want to like, what the fuck were you thinking when this trade went down? Oh, I was very surprised. Just, <laughs> just based on things that I had been hearing, like from other markets and stuff that was going on, it sounded a lot more, and some of the local reporting that was going on, it sounded a lot more like Miles was going to be the one that was going to be moved. I mean, we had Jake Fisher on our pod, and he had said that prior to the foot injury, that you know a lot of movers and shakers around the league were expecting him to be one of the first dominoes, and certainly there had been some stuff going on there that was just a little bit. I don't know. I don't know that I want to say that were weird, but like he had the this ain't P game against Boston where they didn't play him in the fourth quarter. And then, you know, he said later on that that was just him saying that this isn't Pacers basketball because they lost and like, you know, whatever. But um, that and then just some of the spots after that athletic article had been published where he had talked about like being a glorified role player and, and saying other things of that ilk that the way that he was kind of looking to um, assert himself in the offense could be kind of awkward at times. And the beginning of January was really rough for him. Like it felt like there was a very, an impetus to get him involved early. So you would see a lot more opening sets being run for him. And even the last game before he got injured and came out with the stress reaction in his foot, when they played the Suns, like the first three possessions of the game were like him getting post-ups against Chris Paul and Devin Booker. And it didn't go particularly well, but then there'd be other games where you'd watch and it's like, okay, you want to get more shots. You want to be able to find your own usage in places that's available to you. And they would run like their little boomerang set where somebody comes off of Iverson and then he follows and sets a screen on that side and they fire it to the other side of the floor for Sabonis to then set a screen there. Well, they're in Cleveland and he gets a switch on that side of the floor and points out of it, like, you know, that's the play, reverse it to Dwayne Washington and Kiefer Sykes because they were running a lot of, like, COVID-depleted lineups. It's like, yeah, that's what the play is, but, like, if you want more shots, you could use a swim move there in front of the switch and get something. And then on the flip side of that, they'd be playing Phoenix, and he would, like, dive in front of DeAndre Ayton to get a post-up. So, like, just some of the... It just felt like there was a little bit of a disconnect there. And then some of the other stuff that was going on on social media and stuff, which I don't want to read a ton into that, but it seemed like that's what direction it was going to go in. And then, Mm. you know, I didn't, from what the reporting sounds like, they weren't really finding offers along what they were hoping for. I'm guessing it said that they were looking for a first round pick and potentially a young player. Sounds kind of like what the magic got for Aaron Gordon, maybe. And then to see that it was actually Sabonis that they flipped to, I mean, it had been reported that they had been shopping both of them to a degree, but I was expecting because of what type of player Sabonis is and that he can be, I don't want to say like a difficult fit, but you do need to build things around him differently than you do Miles Turner, that there might be more offers for him around the draft because teams would have a better sense of how to prepare their roster for that rather than midseason. And then to see that Tyrese Halliburton was available at all because you know, there have been rumors about maybe De'Aaron Fox in a deal with the Pacers because the Kings had had interest in both bigs and that the Pacers weren't necessarily interested in De'Aaron Fox. I don't 
I don't know that personally if that's how the front office felt, but to get Tyrese Halliburton in the second year of his contract, and I say this as somebody who I think is probably more optimistic than the internet at large about who Sabonis is as a player, there's no way the Pacers don't do that. Like, if you can get a guy who can be your franchise point guard with the type of feel and the shooting and the fact that the Pacers had no spacing for you know, months on end where they're literally having Chris Paul and Phoenix look at their bench and say they can't effing shoot and watch guys just load up on Sabonis for months because they don't really have a lot of perimeter gravity. That changed things with Tyrese and what, you know, he gives you as an upgrade over Malcolm Brogdon as a playmaker as well. So um, totally understand why they did it, but very surprised that it was um, on the table. Yeah, I was... I was surprised. I also like, I actually liked the move for both teams. Actually. I know there was a lot of like, you know, there, I mean, there was a lot, I think it was an obviously good move for the Pacers. Yeah. Like you have to make that move. Like you said, um, I'm probably not, not probably Prez is going to laugh when I say probably. So I'm just going to be honest. I'm definitely lower on Tyrese Halliburton than most people. Um, but like, I think he's a good player, obviously. And I think if you can, I mean, there's no, it's not even a thing you have to think about, right? Like if, if the cost to get Halliburton is alleviating this kind of issue that's been persisting now for years with the Pacers, I mean, you've come on here and talked to, you know, you always have made the joke of like, I, you know, I don't have any thoughts about Sabonis and Turner together. Like no thoughts about that one. Um, But like, that's an issue that's been there for a long time. So you eliminate that issue, and really the cost of doing this is you got to live with Buddy Heald for what two years? Like I think he's two years left on this contract. I mean that's that's just a no brainer. I think for where they where the Pacers were heading, and obviously like you know we've talked about this, but the Pacers now you got to get a bunch of you got to get defense guys that can defend on the wing and all that kind of stuff. But it does in a lot of ways I think simplify what the front office needs to do in terms of roster construction. And look, like like I said, I, I'm not as high on Halliburton as other people, but he's definitely somebody that is a viable, you know, franchise building block at the guard position. And he can play make, you know, is he ever going to be a high usage scorer? I'm a little skeptical of that, but like, you know, he's scoring efficiently. He's giving you what, like 20 ish game, a game, whatever it is. Um, you know, I, I just think it's like a, it's such a no brainer for them. I, I, it's kind of amazing. It, it happened. And I, I, I mean, do you know how it happened? Like, did it just, did the Kings just call up and were like, look, we'll do this deal. And the base, like, cause I, I, I don't, I can't even imagine how that would have went about or like, I mean, uh, of course there's obviously the, the possibility that the Pacers just asked and were surprised by the answer. And it was like, you know what? Don't hang up the phone. Let's get this done right now. Yeah, I mean, I will say that this is not coming from people with the Kings or people with the Pacers, but just stuff that I've heard from people I've talked to from around the league in the immediate aftermath of when that happened was essentially that there were not a lot of teams, if any, maybe like we're talking like two who knew that Tyrese was even available and that there was a lot of pressure on the Kings to bring in an all-star player at the deadline. And Sabonis was clearly one of the few that was available along with, you know, Ben Simmons. I don't know how the Knicks actually felt about moving Julius Randle, how many players were in this pool that would have been willing to move. So 
Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to think people ask me a lot, like, did they pick between Sabonis and Miles? And again, that'd be a question for the front office to answer. My general line of thinking is that they didn't choose either one of them. They chose Tyrese. My guess is if the Kings call and say, you know, we know that you want to simplify this double big thing and we need to upgrade at the center spot. Our defense is bad. We want to add a rim protector. We'll trade you Tyrese Albert. And my guess is the Pacers still probably want to do that. But that's just my opinion. Um, yeah, like I... So, I mean, there's been reporting, at least from the Knicks end, um, it, just that if the Knicks did want Halliburton, it wasn't just going to be like Randall for Halliburton. It was going to be, you know, they wanted you know, RJ Barrett or a bunch of picks. And it's just like, that kind of just doesn't make any sense to me. We have um, a real big, like, <clears throat> unless you get funky with picks, we, we, we don't have those like high end, but not Godfather offer type. Like we don't have an equivalent of a Halliburton or a Sabonis really. Like we always we had could was... if Tibbs would stop being a fucking boomer. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Goes without saying. We could have had players who had much more uh, highly perceived value, but we don't. So we were just kind of like, you know, you know how Nick's Twitter is. And even not just Nick's Twitter, just Nick's fans in general. Like as soon as the trade happened, first shit I had to deal with it was like, oh, why didn't we trade Halliburton? <laughs> oh, Obi can't even play nine minutes a game. Like if we picked him over Halliburton, we're the only team that picked Obi over Halliburton, blah, blah, blah. So like, like once you sort through all that noise, you kind of see it for for what for for how it is, which is how y'all described it. Like there's, it was out of nowhere, but it, it did fit with what both teams' perceived goals are, right? Like for the Pacers, I know Schwinn always tips his cap to teams that choose a path, and he hates when they try to waffle and like have their cake and eat it too. So we even like the Knicks talking about. You know, should we go after a Jalen Brunson yeah, type? It's shit like, or get off the pot. Shit or get off the pot is like very high on Schwinn's like motto list, of which there are many. And and you know, for the Kings, like yeah, like we could quibble about the riskiness of trading somebody who has the perceived ceiling of Halliburton or whatever. But it was also probably a sign of confidence in um in Mitchell, who also started balling out as soon as yeah. they uh. As soon as they left, obviously he's a little older, but um, you know that just means he more closely matches Sabonis' timeline. And why do they have this weird timeline? Questions I don't have answers to, but you know it is what it is. It's a decision and a path that they made or chose. I mean, I, I think the other part of it too that like people, you know, look, Caitlin touched on this too that there was pressure on them to make a move. Look, it's not a secret they were shopping Fox, so I mean, it, it is what it is. It's pretty obvious they did not get much traction on what Fox would uh, return in value to. Uh, and I'm, I'm definitely, I, I want all the Knicks fans who were treating De'Aaron Fox at the deadline, like, you know, fucking prime Isaiah Thomas or something like that. Like magic Johnson. Um, you know, look, I just don't think his value is, it's, it's just not that high. And especially with this contract and everything. And, you know, like it, it boiled down to like, look, do we want to just, do the thing we've been doing with these guys and not change anything. And, you know, like that, that clearly didn't work, right? The Halliburton Fox Mitchell thing. I mean, I, I don't know if you watched any of those games earlier in the season, Caitlin, but watching them at the end of games, try to D up with those three guys was insane. Like Mitchell is their stopper, which I get, 
but he would have to do things like you know they're playing they're playing like the Celtics and he's got a stick on Jason Tatum like that makes no sense it, it was crazy to watch it and I just think like they needed to make a choice and Fox didn't have the value so it was do we re- like this is what we have to do that or we just keep the status quo going Fox's value probably isn't going to get any better really like his contract is just getting it, it's reducing in time so it'll be easier to move him as you go on but you're not I mean I think really value, a great I, package I, I mean I don't know how much it'll increase because you know he is different you know even after the deadline when he started hooping they were still losing so that kind of mitigated a little bit of the value gain but like it's it's not unlike the the Pacers two stars where he's talented. You just need certain things around him, and the Kings did none of that. And even something as simple as like having another guy to attract a modicum of attention and do handoffs with, which he never had, like automatically juiced his stats. You know, was it impacting winning? Whatever, whatever. We can debate that, but like in terms of have you optimized your star? Like, yes, you prefer your star optimize everyone else, but unless you're one of those 10 all NBA, I mean, 10, like all NBA first team MVP type dudes. Reality is you have to, you have, if you have one of those slightly flawed stars, you have to face that decision, which is exactly what we're talking about, about like, all right, how much do I spend to optimize around Something that eh, some people may say is a questionable star or not a super duper star or whatever. Well, it's also like like if the goal if they were under pressure to you have to get an all star back. Yeah, like it automatically reduces the your options. market. Yeah, and and totally. how many teams had an all star they were going to trade for De'Aaron Fox? You know, like I think the Knicks would have done Randall for Fox straight up. I don't think the Kings would have done that though. No, and um, nor should nor should they. <laughs> I mean, I actually think they should, but that's whatever. But um, like, it, it doesn't really matter. Like, the point is that automatically reduces your your options, and in that case, like Halliburton becomes your best chip. Um, I always struggle with this, like the after the fact reporting of oh, like because we dealt with this, you know. The Danny Ainge reporting. You can call it what it is. Not just that, but like (laughs) we saw with when we traded Porzingis, right? There was all this reporting immediately after, like, oh, the Spurs didn't know he was on the market. Oh, this team didn't know he was on the market. And they're like, you killed this team for that. But at the same time, like, shopping guys in the NBA is tough. Like, it's not, it's really not as simple as you call up the other 29 teams and let them know you're shopping a guy. Like, that's not how you get value. And, um, you know, like, I always struggle with how much to kill a team for that. I will say, though, with Halliburton, it is kind of weird that, like, if that reporting is true, that only a couple of teams knew. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of that. That's kind of wild to me. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's just the whispers that were out there. I don't, that would have to be answered by the Kings. I know that I think, I don't remember who it was, if Woj had something on a TV segment where he had insinuated similarly that there weren't a lot of people that knew and would have wanted to get offers in. I mean, I guess to my thought is if like you want Tyrese Halliburton, can't you still call the Kings and say, hey, like we're interested in that guy or would you be interested in this? Like maybe that's not how business is conducted, but it seems like that was still possible because I mean, obviously the Pacers did that. I mean, I don't know which direction, how all that came about, but I do know that Kevin Pritchard said that they had a player circled that they were interested in and clearly we now know that that was Tyrese because that's what he said when he was introduced so um 
I think that that's where their interests lied. And that makes sense for how Rick Carlisle wants to play. I mean, when we did our podcast, we, we lightly touched on some trade rumors and we talked about De'Aaron. I wasn't sure that that was going to fit. Um, not only because he's somewhat of a non-shooting guard and people go under screens and the fact that the Pacers really like for De'Aaron Fox just to run the rake and transition, they didn't have the shooters to support that with, if you're just trading one guy out and bringing De'Aaron in. And plus um, Carlisle's teams aren't exactly known for transition frequency, which I'm really interested to see how that's going to play out the longer um, Tyrese is on the roster and how they build out the rest of the team. Because in the initial, when Tyrese came over in the first four games, their transition frequency was at about, you know, league average, which was way higher than it had been earlier in the season when they were around like 27th. And like the last six years when Carlisle was in Dallas, they were in the bottom five of the league in transition mm. frequency. So I thought, you know, there's going to be an uptick here. Cause when you watch Tyrese, it is very adamant after like, even after makes he's clapping at guys. Like he wants to get the ball in quick <laughs> and he wants to head the other way. Like sometimes he's jumping out of his skin. Like, let's go. He wants to go the other direction. And, you know, Carlisle does like to slow it down at times. I mean, he's talked about wanting to play at a faster clip throughout the season, but you can notice spots where he, um, I don't want to say micromanages, but wants to call out plays in certain sets. And that makes that makes sense in some settings. And sometimes I question it a little bit. But um, by the end of the season, it had fallen. The rate is almost identical to what it was at the beginning of the year. Their pace is still up a bit. But in terms of their overall um, percentage of plays they're getting in transition, that hasn't really changed. So when De'Aaron was being mentioned by various reporters of like, oh, maybe, maybe they could trade Sabonis for De'Aaron Fox, we had significant questions about how that would fit. Cause like I said, I mean, I just don't think, I think people look at the Pacers roster and think, Oh, well they, they have, you know, Malcolm Brogdon and miles Turner and you know, all these other guys that can shoot. And in reality, like miles started out hot to his credit to start the season. But like by mid December, they had one of the second worst three point conversion rates in the NBA. And it was, it was evident anytime you watch like the most, the best example I can give of how much the spacing changed from that first iteration to the team to when they're just playing with young guys here toward the back end is that like they're playing the wizards in the game where miles Turner scored 40, which was the second game of the year. And they're it's either late fourth quarter or overtime. And they're running a double drag with miles as the first screener. Sabonis is the second and TJ McConnell's in the weak side corner. Cause at the time, Karis Levert had the, yeah, Karis Levert had the, the back fracture. TJ Warren's never in the picture. So Malcolm comes off the double drag. And even with miles scoring 40 in that game, his defender still has one foot in the paint. McConnell's defender is clear in the paint waiting for Sabonis to roll. So, you know, that's not going to be an easy pass for Malcolm to be making to Sabonis. So he whips it to McConnell in the corner and like, that's what you're getting. Now, when you're watching Tyrese Halliburton and he's coming off a double drag, it's Buddy Heald as the first screener. And then, you know, Isaiah Jackson as the second. So there's going to be vertical gravity with him rolling. In addition to the fact that, you know, Buddy's going to stand several feet outside the three point line. And even though he had a career worst percentage, people still respect him as a shooter and you have Chris Duarte in the weak side corner. So the spacing and how much easier it was for Tyrese, which I genuinely think that Tyrese is a better playmaker, has better vision, better feel than Malcolm. Like the spacing is just completely different for these two individuals. So um, you do have to look at Malcolm through that lens that the type of spacing that he was dealing with, very different. Uh, All right, look, let's talk a little bit about Malcolm Brogdon, the apple of many Knicks fans' eyes. Look, there is a perception of Malcolm Brogdon, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. He that he is like a very malleable player, that he is a good floor spacer off the ball. Um, you know, you can fit him in a variety of lineups. 
that and I'm I'm very curious about this part of it. He obviously had a strong rep, a reputation as a strong defender uh, when he came into the league and during his time in Milwaukee. And I'm just like, like, what is that stuff true? Because I also read like I was reading, um, I forget who it was. I think it was Michael Scotto of uh, Hoops Hype. He did a pod of, a little while back where he was talking about Brogdon, um, and he was saying like what people perceive his value as around the league is a little bit more murky. Um, there are teams that just don't consider him an asset, which I don't necessarily think is entirely about play style, but also um, his injury record. And I just like, what, what are your thoughts? I guess of just him as a player. And then, you know, what about like the kind of the qualities I listed there? Are those accurate or would you push back on any of that? Well, can I take you on a little bit of a history trip two years ago? Like, I think that it's valid. I think it is. Like, if we go back to when he was originally signed out of restricted free agency from the Bucks, when he gave his press conference, he was asked, like, what position do you play? And he said, I think that, you know, my position ideally is point guard. And at the time, Victor was still playing and there was questions like, how is this going to work? And they said, you know, the team really built this as like, oh, they're going to be so complimentary because... You know, Malcolm's coming off this 40-50-90 season, and Malcolm said, like, I'm going to play point guard, but Victor will know that he's going to get the ball, like his point guard's going to get him the ball. And, you know, then Victor took a while to come back that season and really wasn't himself, so you really have to take that somewhat with a grain of salt. But they're they're running Nate McMillan's offense, which, you know, by the time they got in the bubble, like, that was very one and done. I think that Nate McMillan deserves some slack for that because they didn't have Sabonis to get them into next actions against Miami's defense. And I think they needed his role gravity and other things to be able to help them um, lubricate certain things against that type of coverage. But beyond that, like, the offense was what the offense was. But he and Sabonis in their first year together – like he started out very hot that season, was racking up a lot of drives early on. It was practically a guaranteed bucket. Nate McMillan was amenable to him being able to do things in the mid range, but by the season, by the time the season got to the end, his body really started wearing down. Like he ended up missing the back half, had the hip thing, and then unfortunately ended up contracting COVID right before they got into the bubble. So then the next season starts and you have Nate Bjorkren and again Malcolm's gonna play point guard for you and Nate Bjorkren is playing Sabonis and Brogdon way too many minutes to start that season treating like game seven like it's game seven of an actual playoff series there's games where they're playing upwards of 40 minutes Sabonis is leading the league and and distance traveled on defense Malcolm's touches and time of possession are clear near to the top of the league and again like his his body wears down as the season goes on so this year kind of a somewhat similar path and like I said I give him a little bit of a break because of what some of the spacing was but, you know, for the first time, you really saw opponents kind of, and I wrote about this when I talked about why I didn't think what was happening to them in the clutch was just about, you know, bad luck as sometimes people make it out to be. Because I'm sure, like, Nick fans listening to this will remember um, the game that the Pacers lost where they only scored, whatever it was, 10 points in the fourth quarter against the Knicks yeah. at Madison Square Garden. And what you're seeing in that game kind of was a recurring theme where, like, they... Tibbs had Alec Burks extend the pressure against Malcolm Brogdon and was really like three-quarter court pressuring him. And Malcolm doesn't exactly have like the burst handle combination to deal with that. And then it just became a lot of zero pass isolations between him and Karras. And then the next night they go to Detroit and they only score like 10 points in the fourth quarter again. And teams really started blitzing him and then just pulling over on Sabonis. And he had a lot of trouble at the beginning of the season handling hedges and traps and getting the ball out. And that was 
very recurrent. The role man was like, they had a weird allergy to hitting Sabonis or even Miles on the roll in certain circumstances and really facilitating from there. So then we see again that Malcolm, you know, he's being used a lot and it ends up having the Achilles injury is kind of worn down again by the back end of the season. And then they acquire Tyrese and the conversation very much shifts to this is our franchise point guard of the future. So um, I think that it's, it's somewhat logical that the conversation got there based on what I've just said, because I think ideally for him to hold up over a full season, he needs to do a little bit less and have other people ease his burden. So it's going to sound counterintuitive so that he can be more aggressive throughout, because I think, Ideally, he can still run offense in spots, but you're using him more as a slot driver away from the ball. He's an aggressive driver. He can draw free throws in that way. He did that for the eight games when he came back before they ended up just kind of resting him for the rest of the season. Um, But as a three-point shooter, he just didn't hit the three well this year. And that included, like, he did a little bit better off the catch once Tyrese was in the fold, but it was on very low volume. It seemed like that was even affecting him a little bit, that the three-point shot wasn't quite there for him this season, and that, in part, was why he was racking up so many drives. So um, if the if you were to remain with the Pacers, and because they already have Tyrese, I think that there's going to have to be um, somewhat of a change in mindset from both players that Malcolm's going to have to realize like, okay, Tyrese is here. I need to play more off of the ball, and Tyrese also needs to realize I need to be more aggressive in and being the one running the offense because what you saw in the four game or the eight games that they played was you'd get into crunch time and there were games where it made sense, not all of them, but that you know they'd be up in Detroit and Isaiah Stewart switching out to the ball. Tyree struggles in some situations against length and switches, so now it's running through Malcolm and it's just it's one and done stuff like what we saw in the bubble against the Miami Heat again. So um, I think they need to have the pacing of Tyrese in those late game situations like I distra- uh, described against the Knicks so that you're getting somebody that can get the ball up quicker and get you into stuff. And also so that you can get to the next play, which isn't necessarily Malcolm's strength if all of that long monologue makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that I'm interested in is the answer to the unspoken next part of that, right? Like, which is, okay, can Tyrese take charge or does he get help from Rick Carlisle? Because, you know, that was the thing. Like I'm a draft guy and that was the thing with him, right? A lot of people underestimated how good he was at the game right now, but in terms of dialing up that usage and just dialing up his own role, that's the, the, that's going to determine whether he's really good or like a potential all-star. Right. So I don't, I'm, I'm curious I'm trying to think if Rick Carla has had any other young guys who have had a jump in usage like that. Like Luca was pretty much the guy pretty early, so I and I don't remember before that. Yeah, I mean what's what's interesting is if you look at what happened with Tyrese's usage in the minutes he played with Brogdon versus when he didn't, like his usage with Brogdon was sixteen and a half percent according to PBP stats, and without Brogdon it was twenty, which twenty is still gonna be low. Yeah. But like you can tell that he took a little bit more of a backseat in those minutes as well. Whereas when you're looking at the numbers with just Buddy, it stayed pretty steady at 20, whether Buddy was on the court or not. And I think that should be somewhat telling to the Pacers. Like, I don't want to take it too far because it was only 201 minutes. 
But the Pacers got outscored by 17 points per 100 possessions when Malcolm and Tyree shared the floor. And I wanted to gloss that over at first because they had like a really bad 33-point loss to the Memphis Grizzlies in one of those games. Also, like the first two, Malcolm was on a minutes restriction after having been out for so long with the Achilles rehab. And, you know, there's there's factors like that, and, and teams change defensive coverages as well. But then when I broke it down over those eight games, they were only a net positive in one of them. And that's when they blew out the Celtics, and the Celtics were at the end of a road trip. They were a net negative in the other seven, and they won two of those games. So um, I think that's somewhat telling. And also when you just broke it down by quarter, they were a net negative in all four quarters when I looked at it. Because I thought maybe it was just going to look poorly in the fourth. But um, they were never positive in any of the four at the same time. And it, what's curious is like, I felt at times like Malcolm had some really good games individually. And that when he was out there running bench offense on his own, like he looked a lot more spry and looked like he was moving better than he was right before he ended up being shut down for 10 games. But yeah, I mean, I think that that you hit the nail on the head. That's the biggest question that the Pacers need to figure out with Tyrese is whether, you know, he is going to be the guy. Cause I mean, he's very deferential by nature. He's not going to take bad shots and he's also sometimes not going to take good shots either um he's going to make the extra pass and there's definite spots every game where you can watch and it's like okay you know it's nice that you made that extra pass to O'Shea Brissett in the corner but now he's having to make plays for the other four people on the court because you know you passed out of a somewhat open three I think that the place that it shows up the most like his numbers against switches don't look bad and his numbers in isolation look efficient, but it's mostly about the shots he doesn't take where you're going to see him in games like Evan Mobley is going to switch out to him or Jaron Jackson is going to switch out to him or, you know, Isaiah Stewart or whoever it is. And like, yeah, these are elite bigs at, at the five position, but he doesn't want any part of it. Like he, he needs to create space for himself to step back to three. Otherwise he's mostly relying on his very low gather and craft to try to draw a foul. If he, if he does rather than being able to get into the rim. So I don't know, maybe if he builds up his body somewhat and gets stronger to the point where he can get chest to shoulder advantage a little bit easier in some of those, I think that will help him. But right now, if I was an opponent, I would be doing that to him a lot because it tends it tends to lead to him passing out of it. And in some cases, that's okay because he does have pretty good gravity on the perimeter. He shot above 40% from three for the, for the Pacers. So if you can get Jaron Jackson to, to switch out and then he stays at home on Tyrese and you know doesn't roam into Buddy's driving lane and then a secondary guy can drive in and make a play for somebody else, there's no rim protector there anymore. So um, a lot of it has to do with the context of the opponent that they're playing with, but in terms of just playing with Brogdon, it has had an impact on his usage. And I think that if you're the Pacers, you're going to want him to take steps forwards in that particular area. Do yeah, you, I, real sorry, quick, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. do you think, you know, there's report, I, I don't, I don't know the, the landscape of Pacers rumor gossip reporting. <laughs> so I know I saw a headline somewhere that said that they would consider or try to trade Malcolm this off season or something, which we kind of all suspected. But do you think part of that is because of Tyrese? Like just, you know, it, we talk here in Nick's land about uh, the front office having to take away Tibbs toys to ensure he doesn't shoot himself in the foot. And this isn't quite that, but, you know, if, if you invested in your guy and you see that Brogdon, as good as he is, might not be the best for bringing out the best you need from Tyrese, then, you know, why not spin the wheels, I guess? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak to what their exact thinking on it. My guess is that they're going to be willing to spin their tires on all directions. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that they have working in their favor this summer, that they can go in a lot of different directions with what they want to do. But my thought is, is that if they want to move on, I still think that the two of them can work. It's like what I said before. Like, I just think there's going to have to be an adjustment in mindset. And early on, like I said, they said that they see Tyrese as the franchise point guard. Then when Malcolm was healthy and they were talking about how the two of them would fit, it it was like, well, this is great because they're both, you know, very intelligent, high IQ players. And we're not going to have to call so many plays and we can have two point guards on the floor. And then by the end of the season, like Rick Carlisle made comments about like, well, Brogdon was our best all around player this season, which stood out in my mind because like, I don't know if you guys will know this, but for the past two years, that team does not want to provide any pecking order. Like when it was Miles, TJ Warren, Karras, Sabonis, Brogdon, there was, they never said who they thought their best player was. Like it was, we have a complimentary core and like, that's not just Rick saying like he is our best player. He was speaking in terms of all around, like that he can do a lot of things, but um, I'm not exactly sure what the impetus exactly was for that. Cause then he kind of went off on a, like, I wouldn't say a tangent, but like reference that, you know, Malcolm can guard all these different positions and play all these different possessions. He can play on ball. He can play off ball. He can guard bigs, he can guard smaller guards, which, I mean, I would quibble with, you know, several of those things, but... um, You don't want to see Malcolm Brogdon checking Joel Embiid? Well, I did see Malcolm Brogdon check Carl Anthony Towns, and I don't need to see that again. I saw that at the beginning of the game they played in Minnesota, but... um, Yeah, I mean, I think that mainly if they do look to move him, my guess is what it's going to factor is the timeline that Malcolm is older, he's going to be 30 soon, and that what the health situation is. Because I'm guessing that was a motivating factor at the deadline as well, that at a certain point in time, you can't keep waiting. Like, I still can see what the vision was with those starters, especially if you swap what the old version of Victor was in for Karras and see, like, yeah, you know, that might have worked. Like, that could have been a, a, a decent playoff team. Like, I don't think you're contending. I can see what the vision was. I think it had a limited ceiling, but I think that they finally realized, like, hey, we, we can't, we got to turn the lights off on this. So, you know, in the sense that Malcolm and TJ Warren have been the two most injured players of that grouping. Um, if they do move on, my guess is it's, it's going to have more to do with that, that like maybe eventually you don't, you know, want to settle for Malcolm playing less than 60 games a year. And you're also looking at, you know, building around the timeline that's more, you know, Chris and Tyrese and Isaiah Jackson and potentially miles. Um, the durability is interesting. I just wanted to say, I did watch a game, this year, after the it was after the trade, the one where the Brogdon played, but they played Cleveland, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like down the stretch, you could definitely see that it became very much the the Brogdon show. Um, so that that was very interesting. To I will interject there and say that that one kind of made sense to me though, because Rick went small and played Dwayne Washington Jr. in that lineup, and Laurie mm-hmm. Markkinen was defending. Malcolm Brogdon because Malcolm yes. was essentially yes. at the four so like a lot of people questioned that in the moment but I'm like he has a clear advantage and scored like two or three times over Laurie Markkinen like in that case I can understand shifting Tyrese off but anyways continue yeah no I, I um but what I was gonna ask is you mentioned durability and we happen to have a very durable all-star power forward on the roster uh him and Miles Turner happen to be good buddies like, do you think that if they kept Miles, 
is Randall a player that they would maybe consider swapping Brogdon for, kind of given the injury history with Brogdon? And I, I'm not sure if you know this or whatever, but like like I had mentioned before, there's been reporting to suggest that Brogdon's market is not as rich as it might have been in the past. Um, so like, you know, and, and we know that Indiana in general is not averse to taking on guys signed long-term elsewhere. Um, like, could you see Randall being a player that they would look at and be like, you know what, we think we can buy low on him and that with the guys that we have, he's going to fit a lot better. And if we can get him back to the level he was at, like, is that something that you could see them being interested in doing? Or do you just kind of view how things will happen with Sabonis and you're like, no, nah, I just don't, I don't see it at all. I would have a lot of questions if that happened or if that started being rumored to happen. Because when the season started, like, I think that Rick Carlisle tried to make the double big thing work. And for a while, like, in part, their net rating was what it was because opponents were shooting very low three-point percentage when the two of them were out there. And once um, that changed, it didn't look quite as stellar as it had before. But I think he tried to make it work, but I don't think he was super enthused about the idea of doing it. Um, there was a moment in summer league where he was asked a question about the roster and he was like, yeah, it's an interesting roster. And you know, the East is, is getting more competitive. Like it, it just didn't sound like he was super enthused about it. And, and maybe he was, but that wasn't the impression I got in the early going. And then to see the way that he started the season using Sabonis and, you know, maybe in part, some of that was a product of, you know, we now know that Miles clearly wanted to be doing more things as a five. He wanted to be involved in the action more as the screener. But when you go back to preseason, I mean, I watched, I wrote this very early in the season of why is Sabonis in the corner? They were having Sabonis off ball, like in the strong side corner, which, you know, it makes sense in certain circumstances because people aren't going to help off a center in the strong side corner like they would the opposite. But the, the overarching question generally was like, why is this a thing that's happening in the first place when you know, he's your better handoff operator, he's better in delay, and is generally the better screener. And it felt like they were trying to be more interchangeable with it, sometimes even interchangeable with who they were rolling and popping. And I get that, like having more variability keeps defenses off balance, but also like not everybody on that roster could dribble, pass, or shoot. And they were treating everybody like they could dribble, pass, or shoot and had really divested a lot of Sabonis' post touches and a lot of his elbow touches for like the first two months of the season until they got back from the road trip I talked about earlier when they lost the three straight games to New York, Detroit, and then got kind of embarrassed in Charlotte and then he benched all five starters and then they kind of made a game of it with the bench. And they come back and like he wasn't standing during the game. He was sitting there and he was he said afterwards, like, I wasn't gonna call a lot of plays. We played random almost the entire game and like Sabonis had returned somewhat to being the fulcrum. But even then when the game was over and he got asked about it, he's like, Well, Sabonis was open. And like I, I again I would quibble with that description somewhat because in a lot of games Sabonis isn't open. And there was a clear emphasis on getting him more elbow touches and running more two man game with he and Justin Holiday and just playing in more of a flow state, more flow game. And they shifted to that eventually, and then especially when they went through the COVID stretch and they didn't have guards available, there was full on, you know, points to bonus, getting screens at the elbow and doing some as the ball handler. But again, like it was when he was backed into a corner that he did it. And it worked like Sabonis looked like himself again. And yes, they weren't winning games, but also like there was G League players playing major minutes. And it, it was more a realization of how he needed to play. But I just think Sabonis wants to play through triangle concepts. And 
whether that's in the post or the high post. And I don't really think that that's what style Rick wants to play. So I don't think he and Julius are completely similar players. Like Julius is more of a three, four, or at least that's how I would characterize them. And Sabonis is more of a four five. I think that overall Sabonis is better at facilitating offense. Whereas with Julius, it's a lot more like face up, you know, trucking to the basket and making reads and passes that way when he draws attention, though he does do some of it out of the post as well. But like, I, I would be surprised if they wanted to go back to that format. And especially with Miles too, like if Miles is going to be part of the long-term future and it's clear that he wants to play at the five, and this was on our recent player review pod, but my question is, how are you getting fives to defend him? And if Julius Randle's on your roster, I'm not entirely sure if that's going to happen, just like it didn't happen with Sabonis and it didn't happen with Thaddeus Young. And most games, like even clear back when Thad was on the roster, if they went to Utah, Rudy Gobert defended Thad. If they went to Philadelphia, Joel Embiid defended Thad. So he was never really having an opportunity to even try to pull those bigs into space. He's being guarded by wings. I do think that there would be a little bit more optionality in terms of, you know, you could maybe try to run four or five pick and roll with Randall and Miles. I've seen the Knicks do that, you know, minimally, but sometimes with he and Mitchell Robinson. And you're not going to do that. You're not going to do four or five pick and roll with Sabonis and Miles, like in the same way. Sabonis doesn't have the same explosiveness and face up situations as Julius does. So there would be some options there. But I, I'm just kind of envisioning the same scenario where you're watching Julius in the post and Miles is back in the corner. And if he didn't like that with Sabonis, I would have a lot of questions why he would suddenly like it with Julius and, and similarly with Rick Carlisle. But, you know, maybe if they don't feel like they have, because right now I don't know who their starting four would be. Like the, the, the wings and the four spot are a clear hole from them. I like O'Shea Brissett. I don't think he's a starting four on a good team. So um, maybe if they felt like they didn't have any other options. But I would have a lot of questions with the current timeline that they're at and whether, you know, just adding Julius is going to get them to be, you know, because for me, just generally speaking, if they're going to make any types of short-term moves, like going and finding more veteran players to add to this group or potentially trading a draft pick, they need to do it like feeling pretty sure that they have a higher ceiling than just, you know, the play in tournament or like we were a tough out. The NHL season has been packed with dirty dangles, hat tricks, and big wins. As the action rolls on, DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL, has your shot to win big two. New customers can bet just $1 on any team and get $150 in free bets if they win. That's right. A bump in the win column for your team means free bets for you. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you still have a shot to light the lamp. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Fantasy Hockey Contest. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot and millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN. Bet just $1 on any NHL team and get $150 in free bets if they win. That's promo code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL. 21 plus restrictions apply. See show notes for details, which I'm going to read to you now, and I probably shouldn't have read that part. All right. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537. That's in Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Wyoming. You can call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado or New Hampshire, 888-789-7777, or visit http ccpg.org slash chat. 
that's in Connecticut. One eight hundred bets off Iowa one eight seven 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 zero stops, uh, and that or text seven eight seven eight six seven for LA. 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Visit opgr.org. That's in Oregon. Call or text Tennessee Redline 1-800-889-9789 for Tennessee or 1-888-532-3500 for Virginia. Must be 21 plus or 18 and over in New Hampshire and Wyoming. Physically present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See HTTP DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Just to to go back to to Brogdon for a second, um, do you you think the way he plays, all that kind of stuff, if you're the Knicks and you're looking for, I think the idea of like what kind of guard do you need alongside RJ and maybe to a lesser extent Julius, who I, I'm not saying that they're already casting him aside, but I would say that he's not necessarily like central to their long-term planning uh, necessarily. But does Brogdon make sense as a guy that you would want as a lead guard fit? Uh, and like, is that something that you can see and that, that you would be, you, you kind of understand that vision or because like that, that's where I, I just haven't watched enough of the Pacers to have a strong idea of this. Like, cause it does feel like when he was in Milwaukee, he obviously played a lot more off ball. And, you know, since he's been with the Pacers, when he's been on the floor, I mean, his drive numbers this year were crazy. Like, yeah, every time we, every time all of us on Nick's Twitter are looking up the latest, like RJ Barrett drives or quickly since he got playing time drives, you look at the top of the list and it's just like Luca SGA, all behind Malcolm Brogdon at twenty five <laughs> drives per game or something like that. So, mm-hmm. uh, I knew he drove a lot before, but there, there's something, something in them lineups in the last couple months, man. He must have. Really felt like uh, being the lead guard, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of it was because, I mean, he was playing off ball in some of those minutes. Like, he, against the Wizards, I think he had, like, over 22 drives, like what you're referencing. And he was playing off ball some and just really driving against Kispert and, uh, well, even Denny Avia, too, I mean, in some of those. but And drawing a couple extra bodies in that way. But I think some of it was also, like, you know, he had been out for so many games and the roster had had turnover. And, like, I value the type of spacing that Sabonis adds and that he does draw double teams a lot. Now you have to have the right personnel. You need to have smart cutters and people who are actually willing to cut around that. But if you don't have him in there, like, they don't have it. Like, they weren't going to be posting Isaiah Jackson and Jalen Smith and, you know, the other bigs that are on the roster unless, like, there was they ducked in quick. So... The paint, there was nobody in the paint for for Malcolm to be driving in there. And then, like I said before, like there was a different degree of of gravity that just was not present before when you added Tyrese and Buddy. And they were running some three-guard lineups that would have opened that up for him to be doing that as well. But I do think that there was somewhat of an emphasis for him. Like, I want to come back and 
and show that I'm healthy and that I can still do this and that I'm going to hold up over the rest of this season. And like I said, as it turned out, they ended up shutting him down, but, and then he was listed as back soreness for the last couple of games. But um, I guess I would flip the question back to you a little bit because I feel like there's somewhat of a divide among Nick's Twitter. How do you see Julius Randall playing? Like ideally, does he become In a Utah? Maybe. <laughs> well, <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, like you can't Julius Randall's situation, and I'll only speak for myself. His situation is so weird and unprecedented that, like, the, what is normal Julius Randall now is an open question, and it's not just because he was. Horrible this year, amazing last year, and the year before. So is it somewhere in the middle? No, like, I'm talking strictly play styles. Like, the guy was a legit big. He was a four. He was a he was a bruising four. Then he became a, a five half the time in New Orleans with Anthony Davis, still getting the majority, like, over 50% of his shots at the rim, still getting tons of roll opportunities, you know, barely taking threes. And then he comes to Fisdale, and I don't know what that was. It wasn't a big man. It was just a rebounding wing with weird ideas. And then he finally, it you know, like the shooting happened, all the stuff that in his great year that was well-documented. And then you see what happens. He was a third type of player this year because he, uh, you know, he couldn't shoot, so he knew he had to take some more efficient shots. So you looked at his numbers of shots at the rim, and it went up a ton because he was doing more traditional big man stuff, rolling, uh, quick quick rolls to the rim, whatever, whatever. But like, he he was forcing more action, right? I mean, he was forcing more action because you had to because yeah. his jump shot failed him. So it's like, all right, I, I'm gonna try something else. But that being said, he didn't shift back to being a big man, even though he took a couple of more rolls per game. He was very much still playing like a all NBA wing but without the tools to do so. So like it's a really is an open question to me of, yeah. And Tibbs enabled that. Like, let's be clear. So on another team, is he going to be a wing who shoots? Okay. But does more handoffs and more things, more off ball stuff. Like there's, I think there's a bunch of things going on with Julius. Um, Like early in the season, I had a lot of sympathy for him in the sense of, I thought, I, the Kemba thing just didn't work. He he was done, and th- nothing about that group worked. Like it just, it never worked. It it never looked like it was going to work. And it was just bad. And um, I thought it put Julius in some shitty spots. You know, Kemba didn't have much juice on the ball. So then I thought Randall kind of leaned into some of his annoying habits of just like standing at the elbow and demanding he get the ball immediately once they cross half court. It wasn't great for anybody. But what I would say is this, is as the season went on, and you saw this even early in the season, but it really became apparent definitely down the stretch when Randall didn't play, is so, like, we can blame Tibbs for a lot of things, and he's definitely culpable for a lot of the ISO Julius and the indulgence of his kind of... The, his worst tendencies. Julius that, liked that shit, man. Yeah, he he liked it. I think He's, Julius wants that. He he wanted he to liked, recapture the feeling. It's not just that, like like, and, and this this goes back to the Fisdale year. So I I always wonder this, and I, I've thought I've thought about this a lot. 
I kind of wonder, look, like we know they didn't sign Durant and they didn't sign Kyrie, right? Julius was kind of like the centerpiece of their, you know, supermarket dash around free agency. Um, you know, it and and even if you look like you you mentioned this just now, Prez, but if you look at how Fizdale was trying to use him, and obviously it being Fizdale did it in the dumbest, stupidest way possible, but the way he did it was like it, it was it was all it's always been since he's been in New York, them trying to use him or him being used or him choosing to use however you, whoever you want to put the blame on or responsibility to. It's all it's all like him being an initiator, not just a play finisher, but somebody who catches the ball on the elbow. I mean, like we, we people have talked about this a bunch, but a lot of it is like kind of how we used Carmelo when Carmelo was here. He's not the talent Carmelo was, but the way we're using him as like a big wing um, is very similar. And I, I just don't see, I haven't seen any evidence of him throughout the year. Like, we saw so many games where RJ would be cooking, Randall comes back in, and just ices him out for, like, the next, you know, six minutes. And I don't think it's an intentional thing, but I feel like Julius comes in and is like, yeah, it's, it's, I have to start scoring now, because, like, this is my team. I gotta score. I I gotta get, I gotta get us going. I gotta, you know, I've gotta contribute now. And that stuff was really annoying, and it also just became detrimental, because he played, like, shit this year. Um, and then you get into like the stuff we don't know, but can just kind of like, yes, but I have a very hard time believing that Julius is going to ever come into this Knicks team with RJ Barrett and be cool being the number two to RJ. I just don't see it. Like, I'm sorry. I don't care how good RJ gets. Like, I don't think Randall is going to buy into that. And even if he does, what I don't understand is what does he do in that role that is better than Obi Toppin? I don't know because it's not shooting. I'll tell you that they ended up with shooting the same fucking percent from three, even though Obi shot like you know a blind person for seventy five percent of the year, but Randall shot like a blind person for hundred percent of the year. So there's that. Um, but like, I just don't. I I don't know because if you're now if you're taking him away from like. Hey, we want you to be the centerpiece to okay, look, like we want you to be more of a roaming big man who does a lot of, you know, DHOs and and you're gonna set a lot of like we're gonna run pick and roll with you and maybe we'll get you some post up touches every now and then. But more traditional big man stuff where you're making him more you're trying to lean into more of his like playmaking ability. I mean, I just don't see it because to me, I don't care what his numbers are. I don't care what you know, I don't care about that because if you just watch how the team plays when Randall's on the floor versus when Obi's on the floor, it is obvious to me Obi is a better passer. He's a better playmaker. He's a better quick decision maker, which is which is the biggest problem with Julius is that mm-hmm. when he gets the ball, everything bogs down. He ha- he need he does his Kobe thing right, except he's not Kobe. He's not even Carmelo because Carmelo did the same thing, and Lord knows Knicks fans had. Years of debates about, you know, him holding the ball versus look at how good Carmelo is. He he should hold the ball more. It doesn't like you have to be a certain threshold of good for everything to come to a screeching halt around you, right? Like Golden State, if you remember when they got Kevin Durant, they adjust. Like if over time, year by year, you could see them going like more and more isolation heavy. 
But it was fine because it's Kevin Durant. Like, like Kevin Durant can do whatever the hell he wants on the floor. He's going to give you 65 true shooting, and he's going to give you five assists. Like, it, it, it's fine when it's Kevin Durant. When it's Julius Randle, it's a totally different thing. Because Julius Randle, bless his heart, in his all-NBA season, we were 23rd in offense. That's, And I'm not saying that to criticize him. But there's a clear ceiling on what you're going to be offensively if he is playing that type of role. And I don't see him in New York with R.J. Barrett, with Quickly, with Obi, with these guys buying into being more of like a, a playmaker and more doing decision and, and doing more traditional big man things. Um, and Prez has mentioned this before, but especially if he can't space the floor from three, then who cares? Like, then really, what is he doing that, that is so valuable for you? And and for the people that like, you know, his rebounding and all this kind of stuff, like they barely rebounded worse with Obi on the floor versus Julius. Um, and that improved over the course of the season. So it tend, I tend to think that that's probably something that Obi is clearly getting better at. Um, you know, I some of his individual defensive rebounding, the lack thereof is coming from the fact that I do believe that he has leeway from the coaching staff to leak out and transition, which he is one of the best players I've ever seen doing that, by the way. Um, I, and then like, you know, you just get into like, what is the pathway to the Knicks contending? And this kind of ties into like the Pacers too, where it's like, what is the pathway? Is it trying to figure it out with Julius? And what is the ceiling of that team? Or do you just, Try to find a way to move off him and roll with these young guys and play and really lean into what they need to be optimized. Because I did a huge start on this today, but like that to me is what the Knicks need to do. And Julius is an obstacle to that. And he's an obstacle to Obi Toppin, who it is, it could not be even more. It was already obvious to me and I think to Prez and a lot of Knicks fans before he got the chances to start over Julius. Um, that he needed to get more playing time and that he deserved more playing time and that he was actually good. Um, but now having gotten those, those opportunities, you know, what's the saying? The, the genie is out of the bottle. Like, I don't think you can put a, you, you can't, you can't go back. Like you cannot look Obi Toppin in the eye in training camp and, and be like, yeah, you're going to be playing 15 minutes a night behind Julius. And because I'm Tom Thibodeau, uh, that's all you're going to get because I will never play without a traditional rim protector on the floor unless I absolutely have to because of injuries and, you know, a global pandemic that reduces my options and they take away Todd Gibson from me. Like, it's just, it's never going to happen. So, to me, if you kept, especially because they kept Tibbs, the decision is made for me. Julius has to go. And I just don't care about how we can use him, what's the way to maximize him, what what we should do, it doesn't fucking matter. Like they it shouldn't even be part of their thinking. Their only thinking should be what is the best or least detrimental trade we can make to get this fucking guy out of here. Um and if he goes somewhere and plays great, more power to him. He's not a bad player. He's not a bad player. I think that asking him to do and and him wanting to do the things he's doing in New York are are going to make him a bad player, especially in New York. I think his relationship with the fans is broken. I don't like I just cannot see how he 
plays in at Madison Square Garden 41 times a season, I, I think that that relationship is broken. Whatever goodwill he earned last season, which is a lot of goodwill, by the way, like a lot of goodwill. Um, he burned through all of that in record time this year. Like amazing time. I think, but well, when was the thumbs down? That was like January 15th or something like done down the drain, half a season done. Um, it's over. Like, I just think it's over and he needs to get a fresh start somewhere else. And the Knicks need to let these young guys do the heavy lifting and, 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 play a faster tempo where they're not beholden to the ego of Julius Randle needing to prove uh, to the world that he is a worthy number one option, which unfortunately he's not uh, as talented as he is. It's one of those things where like the answer is very clear for the Knicks. It's, it doesn't matter which version of Julius it is because what happened is more than basketball regression. It's, between the ear stuff for better or for worse blame whoever you want so it's one of those things where the the two julius I mean, and the knicks it, it was it was also stuff like they paid him to be the franchise player right like or not i mean look he, he i don't want to he didn't get people like make this contract out to be some crazy thing he didn't get like some crazy max contract or something right like he got four years 106 million that's in this NBA, that's like a... I considered it a steal at the time because yeah, right. he was coming off the all-NBA year. So, like, right. it's not even that huge of a deal. But what I'm... Like, to, to bring it back to Caitlin's initial question, like, on the one hand, front offices and teams who build rosters and use creativity and imagination within reason in terms of player roles tend to get rewarded i feel like um versatility goes a long way these days of course you you know there's you could nick nurse it and fly a little too close to the sun (laughs) but even he knows knows when how far to how far to push it and when to stop so like does he though (laughs) i mean in the playoffs we'll see but um because he's gonna need all them tricks uh this go around but uh no like you can i can sit here and do my my armchair psychologist guesses because I'm like, oh, ideally he would be best suited at a team at on a team with a clear, if not a quote unquote alpha guy or best player, but like at least a main ball handler. Like if you talk about Charlotte, like is Julius better than Lamelo? It's fine, say he is, but Lamelo's the point guard, right? So he's going to be doing a lot of point guard stuff for a lot of the and time. Lamelo's twenty, like right. that's another part of it. Like he's clearly nowhere near the finished product and yeah and julius is quite frankly right yeah so but if if i'm thinking about what do the pacers think they don't have that they have the closest thing they have to that is his bff miles turner and that's one of those things where it's like what are y'all gonna treat it like like russ and kd here because your best buddies like or is your natural <laughs> nature to be like i'm the big wing scorer from new york like y'all just traded for me and miles is my little bro like how are you gonna like if that's what i would be afraid of and then you'd get more of the bad julius versus some some yet unseen version where he doesn't shoot 30 percent for three but he doesn't shoot 40 percent. but he's not playing iso Kawhi ball the whole time so like I, I think he's just got to get he's got, I think a team that I would if I were them I would roll the dice on him I would seriously consider it is like the Clippers um I think he needs to go to a team where there's just like clearly guys that 
even he knows are better than him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. because in his head, if he gets if he got traded to Indiana, there is absolutely no way he's going to walk <laughs> into that locker room on day one and Tyrese Halliburton's on the floor trying to point to him where to go. That's you know what I mean? Like, that's just not going to happen. He's not going to listen to him. He's going to be like, I bench more than you, bro. Like, no shot. Like, I made all NBA. Don't you remember? Uh, like, it's it's just not going to happen. But like, you know, the Clippers are a team. I think, I think one like. They also match. They also make sense in the sense that, like, they obviously have their draft capital is you know gone after that Paul George trade in a lot of ways. They don't have a lot of avenues to acquire premium talent on top of what they have. You know, I think that he is gettable for them in certain scenarios. Like, probably would involve a third team, but he's that's that's a situation where I could see Julius going to. And obviously with Ty Lue also, who is like a very flexible coach, who seems to be really good at getting buy-in from guys. Um, you know, one of the better... I, I don't want to... I, I think he's far more than this, for the record. But he is very much a player's coach in a lot of ways. He's also a great tactician. But um, I think that would be a really good place for him. And I think that, that could make sense. Dallas has always been one that people have thrown around. I'm a little bit less certain of that. Like, they seem to have a pretty strong idea of what they want to do with this team around Luca, which is just like have 17 guys that can shoot threes and never play a five that stands in the paint, um, which is fine. That's what they're doing. So I don't know about that. Like, but I do think like there are teams that are going to look at him and at some point you're going to look like we know the NBA is there's only so much talent to go around. Right. So certain teams have to compromise. And they got to roll the dice on, on imperfect players. Like the Knicks have been here my entire life. That's the um, that's the what that would be the pitch for Indiana and Randall, right? It's right. like regardless of like maybe they view him as a hub like Sabonis, slightly more facilitator than he was in New York because there's shooters and spacing and Rick Carlisle has off ball movement in his plays and Tibbs doesn't or whatever like whatever they choose for him, the idea is that you're going to get some level of buy-in from him with this coach and can you I mean, imagine Rick Carlisle with Julius Randle behaving the way he did this year? I yeah. think he would have blown a gasket. Like I, I actually got to give some credit to Tibbs for just like powering through the season and just only praising Julius in public because God knows what he was thinking internally. There's no way internally he was like, "Yeah, this is fine. This is cool. I like this guy." Yeah, I don't know, man. That's all. That's like a 45 minute answer to your question, Caitlin, <laughs> or whatever. But like. <laughs> I mean, weirder things have happened, and you just wonder if, like, you're already acquiring a quote-unquote distressed asset type of player because you don't know, like, how, literally how he's going to shoot. But if it, if you're not, if that's not the only unknown, and there's another unknown, which is like, we don't even know what role he's going to play. I could see the argument for GMs viewing that as something they could mold, or the argument for saying like, that's a question that I'm not going to pay to find it found out in it, case it blows up in my face. <laughs> a very like basic way for me that I think about it. I think you need to have a clear player on your roster that, that is better. Like that, that just everybody knows is better than Julius. Even Julius knows that. And I think you need to have a coach that is creative. Um, you don't think there's any situation where a team, and a not, strong nec- coach too, not, yeah. not necessarily the Pacers, but including the Pacers, like, a team says, like, no, we actually want to empower Julius, but we're just going to do it differently. I don't even know 
what that would look like. It would look like, like what we were expecting going into the season. None of us expected him to shoot 40% on pull-ups and on catch-and-shoots again, right? And none of us expected him to be, like, frankly, all NBA again. But we expected a version that probably shot a little bit less, probably dicked around with iso ball a little bit less, and probably gave a little bit more effort on D. It seems unthinkable now, but at the beginning of the season, like, everybody was on the same page about that's probably what we're getting.